wonderful to look out over the audience and see a number of visitors with us. And many of you are here visiting your mothers. And we're very thankful that you are with us. Some of you are from a long distance uh, coming in to visit with us. And we appreciate your being here. For those of you who are visiting with us, we're studying from the book of Colossians on Sunday morning. We're getting very near the end of the book. This has been a tremendous study because we have been looking at the letters Paul wrote while he was in prison in Rome. He wrote the congregation at Ephesus. He wrote the congregation at Philippi. He wrote the congregation at Colossae. And he also wrote Philemon. As we're studying the book of Colossians, we recognize that Paul has, as he did to the Ephesians, first established a doctrinal basis upon which everything is based. And then in the latter part of the book, or the letter, he would attempt and does deal with a number of practical issues which you and I must grapple with. This morning, I would like for you to begin our study by our considering a question, as we have done in each of these lessons. And here's the question with which we begin. Have you ever wished that you could be the one who always said the right thing at the right time? I'm going to confess here a little bit. Quite frequently, I will be somewhere, and someone will be going through a very difficult time in their life. Perhaps it's at a funeral or a visitation. Perhaps it is at a time when someone has gone through a very serious surgery or going through one of those surgeries. And while they are facing that, you wish that you had the perfect words to be able to be said to try to uplift their spirits. There's other times when people are going through good times in their lives and you want to praise them and you wish that you had the words. I'm going to tell you there's a lot of times I have looked for those words and not been able to find them. But I've also been sitting there or standing there when someone nearby just had the very perfect words at the right appropriate time. About 50 years ago, one of our brethren, Brother Cleon Lyles, wrote a book, and I could not find it, but it's somewhere in our library, or someone has it borrowed, called, I Wish I'd Said That. He was able to take a number of those statements where people had just the right words at just the right time. And like me, or me like him, I wish I could say that, or I wish I had said that. When you go to the book of Proverbs, chapter 15, and verse 23, Solomon says, A man has joy by the answer of his mouth. A word spoken in due season, how good it is. Just at the right time, if you could say just the right words, boy, you could really help someone out. Paul, as he draws this letter to a close, is concerned about words. About what one says and the timing and the appropriateness of 
these words. So here's what we're going to do in our lesson this morning. We're going to look at three things as we study verses 2 through 6 of chapter 4. We're going to first look at the praying words. That's found in verse 2. We're going to look at the preaching words found in verses 3 and 4. And then finally, some pleasing words in verses 5 and 6. Let's begin to break this down. Let's go back to chapter 4, verse 2. Keep your Bibles open there. I'm going to read this, but I want you to keep your Bible. You may have a note or two that you want to make as we go through. And Paul says, continue earnestly in prayer. Being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Now, I don't know if you realize what a great privilege we have to be able to communicate with our Creator. It's as if you and I realize that everything that we're suffering in our lives, that we have the privilege to be able to carry it to God and know that He cares. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. A number of you have called your mothers. Those of us who can't, many of us have remembered our mothers and remembered a special aspect about them. They cared. You could always go to mama. You could always tell her what problems you had and know that mama really cared. Let me tell you, when you come to looking at our lives, God cares about every one of us. As you and I think about the things that are said in this verse, there are three aspects of prayer that he discusses. The first one is going to be persistence. The second one will be perception. And the third will be appreciation. Let's try to look at each of those as they're found here. As you begin to think about persistence, that means continuing to do something. He says continue earnestly. The word that is found there means to persistently and intensely engage in. I think about what James wrote in James 5 and verse 16. He says confess your faults to one another and pray for one another. Now listen carefully. The effectual, fervent prayer of man avails much. Effectual and fervent. I'm afraid that many of us do like some people have told me. They only use prayer when life is in a crisis situation. Just like a spare tire in your car. Many of you will never open your trunk and check and see the quality of the spare that's in your vehicle unless you have a flat. And then many times we go back there and we find either the spare is not there or the spare is flat or some other problem has arisen. Some people go through life and that's the way they look at prayer. But that's not what Paul says here. He says we are to continue earnestly in it. Most of the time you find this word to continue, it's in association with prayer. For instance, Acts 6 and verse 4, the apostles were needing some men to serve the widows in the daily distribution of tables. And he says to select these certain men, 
Because he says, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's that same word there. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 17, Paul simply says, pray without ceasing. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 1, then he spoke a parable to them that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. How many of us think about praying every day? Every day. Continue earnestly in it. But the second all, he says here, to be perceptive. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? He says, being vigilant in it. And the word vigilant means to be watchful, to be attentive. Now, I don't know how many of you, like me, when I was a child, I was told you're supposed to put your hands in front of you, yourself like this. You're supposed to bow your head and you're supposed to close your eyes. I don't know if I was taught to close my eyes if they didn't want me to be distracted by someone else around me, but uh, that was the way that I was taught as a little child to pray, was to close my eyes. But I want you to notice the idea as it is used by Jesus. I asked Brother Leonard to lead the song, Watch and Pray, because I want you to listen to Matthew 26, verses 40 and 41. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In the garden of Gethsemane, the Lord took Peter, James, and John, and he had them to stay here at a certain spot. The Lord went further into the garden And Peter, James, and John were to, now notice carefully, watch and pray. Did they have to have their eyes open? Did they have to look, to watch, to be perceptive, to see what was taking place? At the same time, they were to be praying to God? Now, I'm not suggesting that you actually have to, during a prayer, open your eyes and look around because that might easily distract you. What I am saying is the Lord was saying you've got to watch while you're praying. In 1 Peter 4, verse 7, I think I learned why. He said, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. The circumstances of life to which Peter was writing, these people were going through a very difficult time. The end, the destruction of Jerusalem, was very close at hand. Many of those who were Christians were going to be threatened by this. That's the reason why you go to the next chapter in verse 8 and he says, Be sober, there's that word, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That devil is out there. You've got to be perceptive. Perceptive is when one is able to see what he is facing in life and to also see what he already has 
in this life. Let me give you an illustration. Here's a man perceptive in prayer, vigilant in prayer. I'm looking at the devil. I know how he's trying to come at me. I know what he's trying to do. And I'm going to pray and ask God to deliver me from the evil one, as Jesus taught. I'm also going to be perceptive and vigilant in my prayers to say, what has God given me? I am going to have to have, and now we move to the third part, an appreciation. He says, with thanksgiving. Our prayers should always reflect a thankful heart. Thankful for all the physical blessings that God has given me. The food to eat, the clothes to wear, the shelter in which to live. And everything that is a part. But then there's even more than that. The spiritual blessings that God has given to each of us. Philippians 4 verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Somebody says, I don't know what I ought to be praying for. You pray giving thanks for what you have. And asking for what you need. And our thanks is not only for the blessings that come from God, but we ought to be giving thanks for some who are here on earth who are blessings to us as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Do you get frustrated with the political system that exists here in our country? I do. But I want to tell you, we are a blessed people. Because this morning we came together in this location, no one hindered us in any way. We're not like people in many other countries. To assemble as we are today would put our lives at risk. We are a blessed people. Now I want you to look with me at verses 3 and 4. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the Word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Now, when he says praying for us, part of prayer involves praying for other people as well and praying for those who preach the gospel. I am so thankful that those who lead our prayers, who direct our minds frequently, focus it on those who are around the world preaching the gospel in hard and difficult places. Brethren, it's also important to pray that we will be able to be successful here in our community in preaching the gospel. What does Paul want them to pray for? A door for the Word. The word door means an opportunity. 
Let me give you a couple of illustrations from the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 19, Paul said, For a great and effective door has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He said, I now have a privilege, I have an opportunity to preach the gospel. But he says, I am facing many adversaries in doing that. Wouldn't it be great if we prayed for people to have an opportunity to preach the gospel? And also pray that those who hinder it, the adversaries, will be few and ineffective. A few weeks ago, we were privileged to go to the city of Alexandria, Troas. As we got off the bus, I remember looking at all the ruins that was there and amazed because I'd never seen them before. But then as I got back on the bus, I thought very seriously about this passage that is found in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. Here we were at an ancient city. Nothing left but ruins. Stones which had been knocked over, pieces of marble of a former civilization. And I thought a door had been opened to Paul here. That door has long since closed. Opportunities only come at certain times. You only have a one chance sometimes to say the right thing at the right time to the right person. What happens if I let that opportunity pass? Not only may it never come again, those opportunities may cease to exist not only for me, but for anybody else as well. Paul says that I may speak the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ is God's revelation of His plan to save man. In Colossians 1, verses 26 and 27, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. It was once a hidden message. It was once concealed in those Old Testament prophecies. But now he says it's been revealed to them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is... Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, God wanted everybody to know He had a plan going all the way back to the Old Testament. And He brought that plan into fruition through the preaching of the gospel to people like the Colossians, who were Gentiles. He says, which is Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. Paul said, I want you to pray that God will give me that kind of opportunity for which I am also in chains. You know, when I read the books of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the book of Philemon, it's easy for me to get caught up in the doctrinal points that are there or to be focused on the practical applications that are contained in it and forget. Paul's chained. He's in prison. 
He expects to be released. He expects to go on and preach again. But he can't go where he wants to go right now. He can't leave and go to Colossae or go to Ephesus or go to Philippi. Do you realize sometimes we have to realize that we're anchored where we are? And what are we going to do where we are? Are we going to be able to take the opportunity that is provided to us and use it? The right words at the right time at the right place. Paul says that I may make it manifest. I may show it as I ought to speak. I think his parallel passage to the Ephesians is perhaps even a little clearer. He says in Ephesians 6, verses 18 through 20, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may speak it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul was talking about people who are timid versus people who are bold. I don't need to be the kind of person who shrinks back into the corner, but one who has a boldness to say, I believe this. And we ought to boldly say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He came into this world to save sinners. Paul said, pray for me that I'll speak boldly. So you have praying words, preaching words. Number three is pleasing words. Notice with me, if you will, verses 5 and 6 of this context. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Walk in wisdom toward those who are on the outside. Who's inside? Who's outside? Inside would refer to those of us who are in the body of Christ. Those of us who have been baptized for the remission of our sins and God added us to the church, Acts 2 and verse 47. Those who are on the outside are those who have not yet been obedient to the gospel. We are to walk in wisdom toward them. That means I've got to look at the things that I do, the things that I say, the directions that I might be going, and consider how I influence and impact them. The reason why is we're trying to convert them. If I mistreat people, by speaking harshly, ugly to them, then how in the world will I ever be able to reach them and say, you need to be a Christian. 
If I treat people ugly, then I am going to be in a situation where they say, I don't want that. If that's what Christianity is, I'm not interested. Walk in wisdom toward those who are on the outside. Let me give you an illustration. When Paul was writing the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 14, he was concerned about the way they were conducting their worship services. In the first century, there were people there who had the ability to speak in tongues, and there were people who had the ability to prophesy. And he's going to describe a situation where you're going to have a service like we're having here this morning. Only difference, we don't have the spiritual gifts. But they would have visitors, maybe family members, maybe people from their community they're trying to reach. And notice the way Paul phrases this. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy or an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Paul said, now you look at the two different situations that may arise. A person comes in and what do they see? They see things that are just going in chaos and he says, they'll report you're out of your mind. Have you ever visited somewhere where you were a little bit concerned about the people with whom you were assembling? I have. And then there are times when I've assembled with good brethren in places where when I left, I felt like I had worshipped God. He's saying that we have to be concerned about the way an uninformed or an unbeliever reacts to the way we assemble together. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. We live in a difficult time, folks. Now let's deal with the latter aspect of this. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. Now what if I ask you, what does the word grace mean? What do you think most people would say? Grace is God's unmerited favor. That's correct. What is grace from me to you or you to me? You see, because we only think of God's grace toward us, but what about our grace toward one another? And here's what it means. A winning quality or attractiveness that invites a favorable reaction, graciousness, attractiveness, charm. That's from Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich, Lexicon of the New Testament. What they're saying is, is that grace is something that makes us favorable to someone else. 
Let your speech always be with grace. I've got to speak in such a way that I have a favorable view in your eyes. Folks, that requires us use our words carefully. You know, you go and you insult somebody before you ever talk to them. How in the world are you ever going to reach them? And then he says, seasoned with salt. Now, I want you to ignore the doctor's advice for just a little bit. He knows whether you need sodium or not. But I'm going to tell you that food without salt is bland. You put a little salt on it and it tastes good. Now go back and listen to your doctor. But I'm going to tell you that salt makes food taste good. The Bible says so. Listen to Mark 9 and verse 50. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how will you season with it? Now notice the next phrase. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You need to be the kind of people that flavor this world. Seasoned with salt. Make sure the words that I speak have some flavor that is good. And then he says, so you may know how you ought to answer each one. The word answer there is a unique idea. There are people who want to know, why do you believe what you believe? I, I understand you go to church down at Bobby Branch Church of Christ. Yes, I do. Why do you go there? Why do you believe what you believe? Well, let's listen to 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give, American Standard King James, an answer, New King James, a defense, to everyone who asks the reason of hope that is within you with meekness and fear. People want to know, and how are you going to answer them? Well, let me tell you what. You don't know what you're talking about. Let me tell you, you're a bunch of heathens. You don't understand anything. Oh, you don't do that because that's not very well seasoned. With meekness, with fear is the way we're supposed to answer. Summarizing, our words can be bad. This last week as part of my just devotional reading. I was reading the book of Malachi. And I thought, wow, there's a couple of points that could easily be brought in here. Sometimes our words can weary people. They can wear them out. In the book of Malachi 2.17, God said, You have wearied me with your words kept reading over, you get to chapter 3 and verse 13. Surely your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. How many times have we allowed ourselves to use words that wear people out? Use words that are harsh and unkind and 
frankly mean. We should be the kind of people who carefully choose what we're going to say. Because after all, we want to say the right thing at the right time, at the right place. And Solomon says, in all the wisdom God endowed him with, the preacher sought to find acceptable words. What was written was upright words of truth. Oh, if I could just study God's word a little bit more, I'd know what to say, how to say it, and when to say it. Our words will be good if they are praying words, preaching words, and pleasing words. If you will, take your song book out. There's a song that is there, I am resolved, no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights. What powerful words those are to reflect a heart that says, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And I'm going to choose to follow Him and I'm going to give Him praise and honor and glory in my life. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you with all the words that we have. There's no greater life that you can enjoy, no greater privilege you can have than simply to be a child of God. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, willing to repent of your sins, confessing your faith in Him and be baptized, everything is ready for you. It's just a choice you must make. If you're God's children and you look at your life and you, like the prodigal son, say, I know that I've made a mistake. I want to come home. We encourage you this morning to do that. Would you come while together we stand and sing?